This is the Constructionist Podcast, where we take ancient stories, the person of Jesus, current events and topics, and help you construct a new Christian worldview that's relevant and loving to those around you. I'm your host, Kevin Bates. I'm a semiotician and community builder looking at the signs of the times to build a better future together. You are tuned into the Constructionist Podcast, and tonight we're doing a short or continuing a short mini series on the Bible what to believe and what to leave. We encourage here at the Constructionists a worldview that is built on the principles of Christ. And in this episode, we are examining the Bible through a clear and honest lens. Now, for some, we're probably ruining the Bible. Uh, talking about old stories of the Old Testament and a few in the New Testament, and giving some new perspectives that may go against what you have learned on your flannel graphs in Sunday school, so be prepared. But by doing so, we hope to offer insights and perspectives that will help you in your own journey towards a greater understanding of love and compassion for yourself and others. So we want to assure you in tonight's episode that we're not fabricating anything, as many have actually done with the Bible. So information and ideas that you've heard in the past might not necessarily be true, but our goal is to provide an honest and authentic perspective tonight on our examination of tonight. We're continuing last week in some just basic history, and then tonight we are going into the book of Genesis and the creation story. So this is our thinking space where we're presenting ideas and thoughts, and we're making our best attempt tonight to explain good theologies to live by. So if you enjoy the Constructionist podcast and want to support us financially, please follow the link in the chat or the show notes on the social media platform you're listening to and visit our Give page. You can also support us through our Patreon page at The Constructionist, and your support will help us in producing high-quality content like this. We want to hear from you. We want to engage with you. We believe that through our interactions and discussions tonight with listeners like you, we can continue to learn and grow together. And we value your feedback, questions, and ideas, and we're excited to build a community around our shared exploration of perspectives. So please don't hesitate to reach out either tonight while we're live or through the week. We do respond if you want to make comments through the week on the social media platform you are on tonight. So let us know what you think. So Sherea, Jake, thank you for joining us. This is our wheelhouse. We love talking about these kinds of things. And tonight we are continuing, though, we're cleaning up last week with this history piece that we gave that we want to uh, make sure that we are giving just the full extent of the history of the Bible, where it came from, why it is what it is, the structure of it. We went through every book of the Bible last week and just talked about the different ideas behind it. We looked at the construct of the Bible, especially the Old Testament, and then now moving into the New Testament. Tonight we're talking about the and exploring the idea of the creation of the actual canon, what you hold in your hand, that Old and New Testament, what belonged in there, what didn't belong in there. And so Sheree and Jake, you're going to lead us out with this discussion. Um, just clean up what we didn't get to last week with the question, when did the New Testament books start to be considered scripture? I would say that that question is, when did they become scripture in history? 
but also a personal question. When did they actually become scripture for me or you personally? Um, because the Bible is a book, but it becomes more meaningful as you find meaning in it and you find value to it and assign value to it. So why don't you two just take us forward? When did the Bible become scripture? What years are we talking here? When, when the Torah was scripture was long ago, right? Yeah. The first five mm -hmm. books. I think that sometime later you had the prophets and the histories. And I don't, I don't know if we have a good date on that. I think that Second Temple Judaism definitely had a lower view of these, but didn't, didn't uh, omit them out of scripture. They're quoted mm -hmm. less except for like Jeremiah or Isaiah. And then when you look at the New Testament and what, and what the church didn't have, had really the Bible uh, in its form now until at least the second century. So for a couple hundred years, the church was functioning without a, a gathered together or an orinating text. Mm -hmm. Um, Sometime after that, then we become to to see the writings of especially Paul as as scripture. But a lot of a lot of books have struggled um, obtaining that scripture status. I think that even when you read them, you have a lesser view of them. Um, we take other words more seriously than others. Throwing out the mm -hmm. entire like a lot of Christians had the the idea to throw out the entire old old, old Testament and. I think those things, <clears throat> some things need to be thrown out and some things need to be fulfilled and some things need to be um, issued with with our current context and culture. To clarify, there's other religions that consider their text scripture. So they're sacred texts. And I guess tonight we're talking about specifically the Christian sacred text of the Bible. Um, the Bible that you hold in your hand or on the device, like your Bible app on your phone, that is a Christian Bible because Jews would take what we consider the Old Testament. They would take that and that would be their Bible or that would be their sacred text. So, and not in the same order as our Bible is ordered. So other, well, monotheistic religions would take the Old Testament, select it as their scripture, but it would definitely be in a different order. So why did the Old Testament make it in? Like, what was the point of that? Depending on who you ask, because it points to Jesus. Right. There is that, they call it the thin red line. It's like a play mm -hmm. on that that Christians call that the thin red line where you see Jesus in all of these Old Testament scriptures, right? Um, but was there a decision at some point, like did Origen do that? Or did somebody actually make the official call that the Old Testament would be in the Christian since, Bible? Since Christianity was a sect of Judaism well into the second century. Mm -hmm. yeah. still still believing that they were the there would be no reason to throw out the old testament 
And so when you mm. finally start to make that hard switch from, from Christian to Jew or Judaism, uh, I don't think it was ever within their context to, to throw out the Torah, especially. Right. Do you, Shrey, do you have any thoughts on that? No, I, I agree. Yeah. Um, once we get um, a little later, so with the first council of Nicaea in 325, that's when there was almost like an official process to start deciding what was the Christian Bible. Um, but even then, not everything was fully decided at that time. Um, and I remember some of the criteria used to determine what Old Testament books made it in and what didn't. Um, one of those things is that it had to be consistent with the rest of the texts. It had to fit in. Um, it had to be either written by a prophet or associated with a prophet. Right. Um, so that was lending authority to the author of the book. Um, because it was the Christian Bible, it also had to be in alignment with the New Testament as well. Mm -hmm. I think so there's just a few to, other things, but I don't remember. Just a caveat of this discussion. I think that when when groups or 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 just a person includes other books or or excludes others from scripture, like I'm not going to take any of Pauline's writings and I'm just going to stick with the gospels and none of the rest of the Bible matters to me, or, or I'm going to stick with just Paul's letters. There's churches out there that just follow the Pauline letters. Um, mm -hmm. and that is in written in their, in their like practical theology. Um, that's all they follow. Um, some only follow just the red letters in, in scripture in the gospels. So, uh, so there's groups out that will throw out the old Testament. Some embrace the old Testament, I think a little too hard with it when it comes to some of the um, practices and such, they're embracing some of those things as in a legalistic sense. I think most of that, and correct me if I'm wrong, I think most of that is based on over a long period of time, what people have done either in translating what the stories are and what they were meant to be or what they've actually done with the Bible and, and whether they deem like Paul, a misogynist and kind of a criminal and really didn't represent Christ well. And so we're going to throw all those letters out or the gospels were written so late. And so therefore they're pointless and we're going to throw those out um, and only stick with Paul's letters. So I think that I think that most or, or throwing away the Old Testament because of what some people have done with the Old Testament or embracing it too hard because of what some people think of the Old Testament as well. Um, there's there's a rejection on either side that I think really starts with this council that you mentioned because you see a lot of bad theology in this council. You see like a really immature approach to scripture at the council of Nicaea in 325, where you see this first council really not take a real solid, I guess, approach to what scripture is and what it actually, um, what's the function of it, I guess I could say. Mm-hmm. 
Mm -hmm. I think um, at least some of it was about rejecting Gnosticism. Um, yeah. So the belief that the spirit is good or the spirit world is good, but the, the body is bad or the physical world is bad or less important or um, yeah. Um, and so the books that were included did have something to do with rejecting the what was considered the heresy of Gnosticism. Right, right. And what the Gnostics were doing with scripture mm -hmm. and what they were, how they were applying it and what they were doing. I would say that in the Reformation and the reaction of mm -hmm. Martin Luther, including other books in the Bible that maybe Martin Luther didn't want to include. I mean, even Martin Luther, though, didn't want to include Second Peter, no apocalyptic literature, hated the book of James, you know, just there were certain books that he didn't like either that he wanted to rethink, retranslate because of his theological reaction to um, the church at the time and how they, they were very legalistic and kind of the indulgences that they were charging for different um, practices in the church. He rejected all those and by, by faith alone, by you know, the, the, the word alone by all of these alone things that he came up with. And there's a plethora of them that James didn't speak kindly to his alone things. Um, faith alone, because faith without works is dead in James. So what do I do with that book if my theology is just this? So I think an imbalance or an immature, I mean, I, I actually am calling Martin Luther pretty immature in that. I would say that you know, it was a pretty reactive time. Um, he was a reactive dude. He was a very reactive dude uh, and very constipated. So maybe that was his problem. True story. True story. But anyway, uh, just just feed me a little bit more on that. Like, what do you think of that council and what was the well, outcome the, of that? The first council in Nicaea, especially eusebius and there's a couple eusebius and they and i would i would have to get the the actual tag ending on on his name um the the really the first church historian um origin was also a historian so i would say that origin was also one of the first but really eusebius is the one that that was a little more accepted to be the historian that really solidified what books went into uh, the Christian Bible. Um, but it was, the books were in existence and were also in um, circulation at the time. And so people had access to these and were reading them and were, and were interpreting what they, what they meant and said. Um, so it wasn't, it wasn't a surprise, I think, of what went in there. The surprise ones came later with like Revelation and James and Second and Third Peter. Um, mm -hmm. Those are the, the the surprise ones that came much later. Um, like sure I said earlier, the First Council of Nicaea was about ending the Gnostic debate, but also ending the Iranianism debate. A R I A N S I I S M. So it's the idea that Jesus was not um, primordial. Uh, Jesus was begotten at the time of his birth. And mm -hmm. so um, 
it was a almost a demigod, a lesser god than than equal. And so um, Saint Nicholas from Santa Claus got up and punched someone in the face because of because of their stance on that Jesus was a lesser the lesser being than God. The um, homoousia. Yes. Conflict. Is that the true meaning of Christmas? That yes, is the true, meaning, true of meaning of Christmas. Of Christmas. A Punch him in the face. Sandwich. Um, <laughs> so that's, that's Santa Claus. Um, he did other lo- many other things, but what he's most known for is punching somebody in the face. Um, mm-hmm. But yeah, I, I mean, if you, if you read, gosh, I have a really hard time with that word tonight, Iranianism. Mm-hmm. Um, if you read the tenets of it, you can still see that there's trends in our church from that. And so right. it was never eradicated. It was just put in a lesser scope than what, than what we would deem as true theology or Trinitarian theology, that it's all, that all three entities, father, son, spirit are equal. And so any book that fell outside of the equality of Jesus to God was taken out of scripture. But the only book that says that Jesus is God in the, in the, especially in the gospels um, was John, which was added much later. Mm-hmm. So it's a hard balance. So one thing that I do know um, out of these, councils and out of this time the challenges is that consensus has really never been even to today i would say that the consensus of of maybe some of the missionary groups and our bible colleges universities and things like that there is somewhat of a consensus of what the canon is but out of these groups a consensus was never had it just a just a formulation of maybe methodology of what made it in, what made it out and why there never not, wasn't necessarily, this is why, this is why Martin Luther could, you know, just add or take away and the Catholics could add and take away um, at certain times in history. Mm-hmm. One thing I did want to mention as we close this one section and then we make it into our another next section on Genesis is the King James version, the King James version, is a rough one um and there are churches that are built around the king james version and they call it the received text and the received text means the latin vulgate was the most complete text that the church at the time had to translate the bible into english so latin vulgate of course latin used translation devices of the day when that was created or compiled over a long period of time and that ended up at a certain point in time well specifically 1611 but a certain point in time that when it was translated into english even before that that was the authorized copy of the of the uh of the um of the text that was the authorized copy of the bible and so to say that the King James version is a better version because it's the received text is actually a completely irresponsible um, idea. And it's probably one of the worst translations now that we have. Um, 
just based on the fact that we have older documents and older fragments of scripture that exist beyond the Latin Vulgate. And so we have other pieces of translatable material that have been used to create what we have as maybe a more modern translation. Plus the King James is an Elizabethan English, which is very difficult to read in the first place in modern day. So King James authorized, King James, the person, the king, mm -hmm. authorized the creation or the translation of the um, King James Bible. One thing to honor the King James Bible though, is before kings would put their faces and their pictures on the front like pages of the, the Bible. And he did not do that. He wanted to make a Bible for the people. So, so to sit there and rip on the person of King James because it's a bad translation is just not really fair because they used what they had at the time. Um, but it is an old translation using an old translation of Latin. And so the words that are translated are not the best words available. They're not the best, um, best versions available. So to, to, to say that that is the only, um, the only text that we're going to use is just, it just doesn't seem reasonable and intellectual. I would say also that Shakespeare is very active at this time. Shakespeare was paid by King James to do a lot of his stuff as well. And so you'll see like Macbeth is right around that time as well. The Tempest is right around that time of the King James publication. And so there's theories out there that Shakespeare's name, Psalm 40 for his 40th birthday, all these things that King James is kind of, excuse me, Shakespeare is written. Um, there's no proof that Shakespeare was involved in the translation. There's no proof that he wrote it. There's no proof of any of that, but there is influences that go outside of the devices that we use for translation today. Let's just put it out. Let's just put it that way. There's political influences. There's money influences. There's friendship influences um, throughout. And so unicorns exist in the King James Version. Um, things like that that you'll read that you'll go, wow, what, what did they do? Why did they do this? Um, there's just bad, bad translating, um, practices of the 1611 version. I think although the King James version is a very poorly written translated version, every, every version that you, we have in English, especially is a interpretation of a group of people on the text. Yes. <laughs> and so... Yes. Um, you said that people were paid and friends and all that stuff. Yes. It's, it's the same today. Right? And, I, and it's <laughs> a lot of it is the same today that there's a lot yeah. of loyalties within, within theology and translation that if you don't translate a certain section the way, and we're going to look at that probably hopefully soon, we're like yeah. halfway into our broadcast. We haven't got to our topic yet, but we will. Um, uh, the idea of, that oh, I'm going to translate this passage in a way that fits my theological bank instead of letting the text 
do the work itself and the heavy lifting mm-hmm. right. um, is often, oftentimes done. Yeah. So all translations, yes, even today, have theological um, and relational influences and financial influences mm-hmm. um, behind them. So you're not going to get your translation paid for if you write a whacked out version of the Bible. Which uh, this was is what probably, happened with the message for a long time. Yes, that's what happened with the message for well, a very long time. It's one of the best translations that we have. And he did a wonderful job of that translation. Even rejected an invitation from Bono from U2 to say, I have to write and translate on a schedule the rest of the book of Isaiah and I can't have dinner with you to Bono. So I guess you didn't even know who he was. (laughs) All right. Well, let's get into Genesis. That's one of our first stories that we're going to cover. Genesis is in the beginning of the Bible, um, in, in the Christian Bible, in the Old Testament. And so you see in Genesis 1-1, the big dilemma. So this is what we're going to do in this series, is what we're going to do is we're going to take each of these stories and each of these books, whether it be just a story within a book, because like we're going to go over Genesis and then we're going to go over Noah and the flood. So, so there's going to be pieces. We're not going to go through the whole book, but pieces of the book. So the big dilemma behind the creation narrative is this is the question is genesis history is genesis history the early chapters of genesis are they a historic a historical account of how things were created and done and by history I mean, did they actually occur in reality? Did they actually occur biologically, scientifically, like going outside of our scientific theories now? Did it actually happen the way that it was written in reality? There's a guy by the name of Francis Schaeffer that says the book of Genesis occurred in real space and time. Did it occur in real space and time? So I would say that first, I'm just going to be very honest. And I think all of us share pretty much the same view on this podcast is I do not believe that the book of Genesis, especially the creation account, it is not a historical account of how things occurred in reality at the said time. The book of Genesis, for me, which you guys can chime in and disagree, is the book of Genesis, for me, is a narrative story that describes function, but also describes rhythm and describes beauty. And probably the main theme that I would say, or after researching for this podcast, it is a, it is a, not theme, but the, the, the reason is a counter narrative to a, another narrative that was existing at the time that it was put down, um, in writing. So, so I would say that this probably, I can't say hundred percent, 
but this probably is a counter narrative to a Babylonian narrative that was circling um, around. You can tell by the phrases, you can tell by the structure, you can tell by a lot. So that is what we're going to go over tonight. Agree? Disagree? Let's just start with that. What is the book of Genesis, specifically the creation narrative? What is it to you, Jake? And what is it to you, Shreya? You can go first, Shreya. <laughs> Uh, agree. Um, because I do believe that the text of Genesis was mostly compiled during the Babylonian exile. Um, so all of the various parts existed within oral tradition among different tribes before exile. During exile, it was put together. Um, and so because of that, I believe that Genesis is a story about who God is and who we are, we being the people of Israel who are exiled in Babylon. Um, because exile is a disorienting thing. You're taken away from your own culture. You're placed in a foreign one. You're left asking, who are we? Where is our God? Like, Mm -hmm. Who are we without all of our culture? Um, and so I think Genesis is an answer to that question. I think if I could give three words, <laughs> um, historicity, historical, and anachronism. So the idea of of Genesis is it does have history. It is historical as a piece of writing. Does it have the historicity of things that did actually happen, actually occur with real people in space and time? To all of our best scientific evidence of, of everything, actually. Um, no, we can't, we can't pose that, that it actually happened in real space and time. But did it mean something to people back in the day that were pre-scientific? I think so. They were doing their best to explain the world around them and what they had. Mm -hmm. And those things that they had were counter narratives from other civilizations. And I think Kevin spoke earlier about it, that, um, uh, the story of uh, the Babylonian, especially counter narratives that we'll probably get into later. Right. But the, the idea of it, does it, is it historical? Yes. But is it textbook scientific data? No. To say that it's scientific data. And that gets Goes. the last word actually was anachronism. Yeah. Oh, anachronism. Yeah. Please explain that. Is placing today's principles and ideas on something that had no, no mm -hmm. right or being to right. be that way. So, um, well, I have lots of examples from, from scripture, but, uh, women preaching, like you can only proof text that by, a, by a couple verses that have no contextual evidence towards women actually preaching. So we place today's struggles 
on yesteryear's writings. Right. And to think that the original compilers of these stories intended them to be historically accurate is putting a lot of eternal pressure onto that group of people that were a not very probably educated um b is they were in prison and and c is they didn't have the information that we have today about how the world operates so so to say that that they had the like voice of god penning their hand and writing this down as it happened is pretty mystical to me it's pretty like too super hyper spiritual to me that i don't think that that's the intention why would god have that intention behind some some writing it's kind of like the book of revelation the book of revelation meant something to the churches in asia that it was written to so for us to like over spiritualize something of how it happened is pretty irresponsible it would be the one book that i'd like to get rid of <laughs> revel because it causes too many problems right the world would be a better so, place with so next here. question though is there's a lot of people that believe that and that i kind of changed my mind on this a little bit i'll say yes and no to this question is did genesis borrow the creation story the flood story those two in particular from other myths like near eastern mesopotamian mesopotamian myths did they borrow these stories from them i would say yes and no that yes they were around but after doing a like a pretty deep dive on this i think that it's more this is the hebrew people's counter narrative to what was floating around and this would be a counter like this is our story this is our purpose or this is our version of these other like possible myths that are out there. Can I can I interject for a moment, Kevin? Yeah, please. So the, you have to get into the purpose of writing. Was mm -hmm. was the intent of the author to communicate the origins of of the world of history itself, or was the intent to write down oral traditions that were already floating around? Mm -hmm. And those oral traditions were not produced in a vacuum. And so there's other influences, there's other cultures, there's other people that are, that are speaking into these oral traditions as right. they interact with them over time. Right. And I would place the, the author's sole intent as a guiding text is to take down these, these wisdom pieces and try their best to put them together. Because if you read the text, there, there are multiple stories mm -hmm. happening all at the mm -hmm. same time if you really did right. into it and we can look in that and exodus is a really easy place to see it genesis one to three is a really easy place to see it right um there's a lot happening a lot going on that we have no idea of and honestly it could be both that's why i said yes and no because it could be compiling these stories as a narrative for a different purpose 
but it also could be interwoven in that a counter narrative to what is happening around them and to try to give some order to the chaos as they are there in prison. Um, Trey, do you have anything to, to add to that at this moment? Sort of, because I think it's an identity formation document, which kind of pulls from both of those ideas. It's mm -hmm. not about answering the question, where did the world come from? It's more about answering the question, where did we come from? Right, mm -hmm. right. Yeah. So if you are a historical person, that you believe that this is a historical document, that the things that happened in Genesis 1, 1 to 3, that happened in reality. If you are one of those people that God created the earth and the universe and all that is around in these six days and on the seventh day rested, called it all good, very good to humans, and took a break. If that is you, you're not going to hell, and I don't believe that you're going to hell. Don't even really believe that anyway, but it, but you're not going to hell. <laughs> I believe that you still can be a Christian, and I still believe that we can fellowship together. That's the thing. I believe that we both can fellowship together and having different views on, on these things. What I really desire, though, is that Christians, like educate up a little bit that we would not be the stupid people in the room and the known like stupid people the uneducated ones because you know we can't have an intellectual conversation about uh, a creation and evolution and such things that we just you know what the bible says is what the bible says and i believe it so be it you know like that like that doesn't speak intelligently to somebody that is scientific. If we can have a scientific conversation and we can have a biblical conversation, I believe those two things can marry in the room. So you just need to know your stuff. So if you're a seven-dayer, I believe that you need to, to tool up on your seven days if that's who you are, just like I've tooled up on why I'm not. I think that, 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 that both can coexist. Um, do I believe that the the seven dayers just really are not looking at scripture adequately? Um, maybe in your deep dive of why you're the seventh day, maybe you 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 would come to that same conclusion. So that's just my word of encouragement. Please don't be this the the most stupid person in the room. Um, and and let's hold our own as Christians when we are just having conversations with people. But if you are a seven dare, you, you're falling into one of, a, of several camps. And one of those camps is called theistic evolution. And this is like a creation evolution where God set that plan in motion and God created the world, the heavens and the earth through an evolutionary process. But what that means is you have to subscribe to evolution and creation. So there's like a dual acceptance there. And then it's stretched through a long period of time, a natural process of time that God just, you know, rolls in. And that has to be integrated with biblical theologies of all kinds. And so, so maybe you're a theistic evolutionist. Um, excuse me. I started out wrong. <laughs> if you're a historical person, if you're not a historical person, you're falling into several camps. I'm sorry. 
you are a theistic, did I say, I totally said that wrong. If you are a, not a historical seven-dayer, you are falling into several camps. One of those is theistic evolution. Another one, and I'll just give like a couple of them. Another one is the uh, functional interpretation, where functional interpretation would be the book of Genesis was written to show the function of God and the spirit and the planet and the stars, just the function, some simple functions. If you're a narrative poetic Hebrew type thinker, then there is a poem to this that means something like allegorical that's greater than what is on the page. So, so if you're a narrative type person or a literary framework type person, then that is, that is another camp that you can fall into, or you can fall into all three, right? But if you're a historical person, that means that really you're falling into possibly one of two or three camps. And so the one camp is the young earth creationist where God created the, all these things in exactly the way that it says in Genesis one through three, or you're an old earth creationist where God just took a little more time, but you're, you're taking a, you know, maybe a guess at how long that is. And then within that old earth creationist is the gap theorists where between the days, there's these large gaps of time between one day and two day, there's, you know, millions of years. So, but God still is created, creating and operating in these realities as we see in Genesis one through three. So there, I got that out correctly, I hope. So if you're non though historical person, like I am, I'm probably falling between function and poetry, somewhere between those two where I sit there and think, well, there's some kind of metaphor that's being spoken here. There's some kind of function being spoken here. And so it's it's somewhere in the in, but can, the beauty can of this poetry be function. I think that's literary function. But I would say that functioning interpret functional interpretation has more to do with how God and the universe are functioning. Okay. Yeah. Just to show that light exists and our day exists and night exists as it is. Where do you guys fall? Pretty squarely poetic, I think. <laughs> yeah. um, I think it depends on, on what you're reading. I think mm -hmm. we get we get one version of of poetry and one version of of functional as I understand it. Um, <clears throat> I think that it's it is a text that is widely misunderstood, misused, and abused. And so, quote unquote, Peter ends. Thank you. No, that was that wasn't totally <laughs> the entire quote. Pretty close. But Air quote. Time. It's it's a it is it has been misused over time, and so what we may need to let the creation narrative not hold any weight for some time, in order for it to regain its importance. 
And I'm totally okay with that because the abuse that I have endured <laughs> over my views about creation abuse, just theological BS. Yes. So the, the stuff that I've had to endure about, you know, um, my versions of, of creation, it just is, is just a lame, it's just a lame unnecessary. argument for me. It's totally unnecessary because my Jesus doesn't get taken away if I don't subscribe to the seven dayer, right? If I don't describe the seven day, Jesus can still be on the throne. So I, I don't understand. If your faith is is taken away if the historical value of the Bible is questioned. Right. You have, you have built your house on the sand. Mm -hmm. And the Bible for me can have mistakes. The Bible for me can have things that are completely contextual and irrelevant today. I hope so. Boiled baby in its mother's milk is not really what I want to do. Um, and I like you, bacon. You weren't supposed to either way because I was living. <laughs> right. Yeah. Don't Something do that I didn't want to do then and I don't want to do now. Um, and and so I look at certain things that are completely irrelevant. Like, why would we even like have to have this discussion? Um, and and I'm perfectly OK with that. I'm settled on my version of Jonah, Noah, and Genesis. I'm completely comfortable with having that conversation. Some people just feel completely threatened that you're taking their Jesus away if seven days is not intact. Yeah, that's that's the house of cards, house of sand. Mm -hmm. House of cards. In the beginning. Nope. <laughs> what? <laughs> in the beginning. Give me your version of in the beginning. Um, the challenge with the Hebrew is that the word the isn't there. Right. It says in a beginning. Mm -hmm. And so... <clears throat> And when, when you look at the word uh, the, it is, it is, it's not really a word itself. It's more of, a, of an indication of article. Mm -hmm. And so if you're going to word for word translate it, mm -hmm. it would be in, in a beginning, the gods created heavens and the earth. Because Elohim, the, the first name of God mm -hmm. is feminine plural so it denotes a a femininity of god but also there's multiple there's multiple creative beings happening um the first article comes with chaos when god's spirit hovers over the chaos the action the one acting in the article the chaos and so probably the best translation and this is a recent recently learned thing for me is when God began to create, God's spirit hovered over the chaos. Mm -hmm. Now, can I push back a little bit on you there? Because there is a found, there is a, a pretty legitimate argument against what you're saying, because you're in the minority camp. I'm in the minority camp. I know you are. And, you know, you're in the Walter Brueggemann camp, I'm guessing of this version so 
as you usually are. The argument for the the time start in the beginning, God created. That is the start of time. Like there's an absolute start of time. The argument for that is the Hebrew sequential um, rhythm, mm -hmm. and it's a pretty founded rhythm. That's a pretty founded argument that Hebrews wrote in a sequence. They wrote in sometimes circular sequence. Um, they repeated. They started here, went here, started again, ended up in the same place, started again, ended up a little farther. So, so there's there's the Hebrew was written in such a way. So the sequence of things, I still, I still, I mean, this conversation really, like to me, is pretty small, but yeah, but I still sit there and churn that over. That there, there, there definitely is a case for an absolute beginning, not just at some point in time God created started creating. There is that counter argument. So. There's a few things that I could talk into that. Um, first is, in order for there to be chaos in the deep, there mm -hmm. had to have had time and, and space before the creative process began. Unless, Unless that was just a part of it. Sure but then it has to exist before time. So yes. So to, just to be clear, the things that we're talking about, of course, can't be proved no, and are, 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 going be, are going beyond like in. So you have in the beginning. So, so before in. <laughs> so, but the second I would say is, is I don't believe the purpose of the text. Right. Is, right. is to, it's about God having power and order over chaos. And that's where the poem comes in because right. of, because of God's power and order over chaos, this poem flows out. There's light, yeah. there's day, there's all these things. And so, the... so, so to disagree with myself. Okay. <laughs> so no, 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 seriously. Okay. To disagree with myself is a lot of times with scripture, we're very linear and Hebrew people were sometimes linear too. Um, they hid things in numbers. So, I mean, if you're hiding things in numbers, you're living in sequential some type of sequence. Yeah. Some type, some type of sequence. So the idea that actions occur in sequential order, right? Could be, I mean, that could be, definitely um debated there's a but if isaiah says that god created all things then that alludes to god created this chaos <clears throat> and isaiah is a pretty good book i wouldn't i wouldn't say that isaiah Agreed. is a bad book but if different authors were writing those texts, then do they have to have the same perspective? No, but you know, it's debated in John one, one, you know, if that's even should be in there that, 
in the beginning, God created all things. All things were created by God. So you have another person from that perspective, you know, I, years I and years later. I definitely would say that the purpose and intent was not to create and was not to give a story of how all things came into being at this specific time. Absolutely not. What I'm so, saying is that did God create it? And did, is he the sole creator of all things? I would say progenitor. I would have a hard time saying the sole creator of all, like starting planting a seed, whatever you want to call it as. Right. Um, that creation goes as God, as God speaks out. I think that. I think that's say, a scary. That's a scary. It's a scary thing, what you're saying to some. It's not scary for me, but it's like to not have an absolute like beginning of the universe and a, and a start of space and time. Mm -hmm. I think that there, there can be it's that. Also... And the Big Bang points to it, which was a theory that was produced by a Catholic priest as well, that we kind of missed that as well, that it was a, a Christian-based <laughs> theory to begin with. But in order for even the Big Bang to occur, there had to be dust. Yes, but to disagree with myself now. Again. Because I haven't disagreed with myself yet. <laughs> to disagree with myself is this. If God is the creator of all things and created all things, space, and time from the beginning and started the beginning, started the beginning of the universe, right? To say that nothing existed before that is, well, something. is pretty vanilla. But is, is, is the, per, the purpose of Genesis 1 through 3 is not about the beginning of time. It's about when God began to create. <laughs> yes, but the the disagreement in this in the beginning which there's no in Definitely the cool. right there's no there's no two words before beginning that 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 right there is showing that god is the beginning progenitor of all things at that certain like time and space and that's the purpose maybe of that writing Unless we there was a moment before that happened. We're going to use it all, use up all our time on the first two words of Genesis. That's all I'm saying is that God puts himself as the, as the beginning. I don't think that you have to do that, but I know, I know what you're saying. And I think right. that that is totally viable. Mm -hmm. Well, I don't know either one is viable, to be honest. This, I mean, <laughs> I think it's because it's, it's not the point. It's not the point of the poem. It doesn't matter, right? It's <laughs> just, it just, it matters. It matters to the argument. It matters to the discussion. When it matters is when we become abusive with our views of creation, right? Mm -hmm. Right. When it matters is when you have to believe. A certain way in order for a group of people to consider you saved or not saved right 
that's when it matters. Right. And it doesn't matter though in in the grand scheme of of redemption and right. Except whether you believe that that before this time, God was juggling balls of glue and then decided to create something at some point. Yeah. He was, or God was forming the primordial ooze out of nothing and whatever. Right. But then you have to reconcile some verses, Jake. You really do. Like Jeremiah, you have to recognize Jeremiah, maker of all things. You have to reconcile Isaiah 44. You have to reconcile. That's ancient Near Eastern, like folklore. I know. <laughs> and so know. to put pre-scientific people yes. in line with, with scientific data. So let's talk about that. Let's move forward with this because the Enuma Elish is the Babylonian story that's roaming around Babylonian captivity at this time. And that captivity in prison, not necessarily the prisons that we deal with today, but in captivity probably is working their tails off or doing whatever they're doing and they live still in tribal forms of some kind and these stories are all around them and this story says this when on high the heavens were not named and below the earth was not a name so so then their god then steps in and names the heavens and names the earth And so it just makes a lot of sense to me that if this story was in the hand of the person that compiled Genesis or Genesis one through three or came from multiple tribes or one tribe did this one, another tribe did Genesis two or whatever, it makes a lot of sense that they were writing this in a counter form to that, to that other writing. Yeah. Yeah. The, the Enuma, a leash, a new leash. But Shreya, you were saying that all cultures have a creation story. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Well, and are you talking about the flood story as well? We talked about yeah, that a little bit. Story and flood story. We're yeah. logging on. Yeah. Um, because the. So deep waters are are often used as like a symbol of the unconscious. Right. Um, And so I think, especially when you have these flood stories that are connected to the creation story, it's not necessarily meant to be taken literally, but it's, it's calling out the, the depth of the story or, or the depth of the culture in which the story is coming from. Mm Mm-hmm. Right. Like it has a very mythological purpose. So also interesting to note is this is, this is there. We have two versions of the creation story in Genesis. There are Mm -hmm. other Hebrew and Jewish origin stories as well. They're not written down and we don't have to go into those, but right there's so many origin stories floating around and these are the two that were chosen mm-hmm. yeah so this also has the undercurrent of this separation where god or the author of this is the perspective is like from space 
So it's like he's standing next to God writing this story from space looking down into Earth, right? And there's this separation like narrative, this motif of night and day, water and land, heavens and earth, sky and whatever, right? So like, like there's this there's this separation motif of cosmos and chaos. And so the hovering over the deep, the water, right from that time, I mean, it was thought what's below the water and above the water. That's which was below the water was chaos. That's which was above the water is cosmos. That which is below the water is evil. That which is above the water is heavenly. That, that lasted all the way to Jesus walking on water, Jesus having power over the deep, where Jesus has power over the chaos and the walking on water. So this idea that God is separating himself from the, the, the cosmos and the chaos, that God is over this cosmos and chaos, then starts to give the illusion that polytheism is not an option, which would have probably been an idea back in the Babylonian times where polytheism might have been a thought or, or maybe idol worship, that there was a counter narrative that God is over all of these things. And so you have things like in Jeremiah 10 that says, the gods that did not make the heavens and the earth will perish from the earth and from under the heavens. And so the gods, the, the author of Jeremiah is actually saying, the gods that didn't make it are not making it. And so God puts himself over all of this and creates it and then puts the chaos under it. And, and so one becomes heaven and the other one becomes Middle Earth. And that's Middle probably... Earth. Yeah, that's probably where this idea that Satan lives in the heart of the earth and the boiling lava ultimately probably comes from. That was a lot. <laughs> <laughs> it was a lot, right. But I just think that that idea of the Enuma Elish that was a real story back then and to create this counter type narrative that is even in a poetic way that has lots of like colorful lessons throughout it to have that counter story is really important to the jewish people to keep their identity intact and that's so, what that's yeah. what sharia was saying is this is identity forming literature throughout most of the of the first five books the, there's a constant theme that that god is greater than the other gods mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. it's it's not that god is the only god yahweh right. is the only god it is that god is greater than the other gods so other deities would have been commonplace especially in in babylon and, and in exile they were they were a mm -hmm. mishmash of people from all over the world that were in exile. And so it, it would not, it would not have flown well if it was just, well, the only God is, is the Hebrew Yahweh. Mm -hmm. Right. 
Um, so an example, um, in the Babylonian um, creation story, um, part of it is um, Marduk kills the dragon goddess Tiamat. Um, and it's out of Tiamat's body parts that the earth is formed. Um, and there's some work done by a theologian named C. John Collins, who views the Christian or the Hebrew creation story as um, kind of a retelling. So separating the the waters of the earth and the waters of the sky, the waters are the chaos. And that is representative of the dragon goddess Tiamat. So this separation of the waters above and the waters below is God defeating Tiamat, the Babylonian goddess. So it's it's almost like it's telling the Babylonian narrative, but switching out which gods win. And what's really interesting is a lot of people are afraid to have this discussion. Like, like it, that couldn't be Sharia. You're actually like alluding to that. This is a story that was written in counter to this other goddess that her body parts became earth. I mean, that's just like crazy talk, but I do this every Sunday, every Sunday I have a counter story and I have the God story and I teach the God story. And it's always in light of the counter story. And so this is an oppressive story and this is a freedom story. And so this is just like a good sermon, I guess, on a Sunday morning where you're like, like, like retelling a really cool God story in counter to the oppressive story. Can we, can we request more dragon slaying in your sermons? <laughs> Yes, please. <laughs> please. <laughs> so the Ruach, which is the spirit hovering over the deep, is that same idea that now instead of space, mm -hmm. now we're coming down to earth and this this goddess that's in the deep that her body parts become the earth, that it's showing that the spirit of God is over that mm -hmm. that deep. Right. Jake, do you have any perspective on that? Of God's spirit hovering over the deep? Yeah, or just anything that we talked about, even the Babylonian story. When you read Babylonian myths or Syrian myths, and I, I've been trying to find some specific ones, but we can do that at some other time. Right. The... They mirror scripture very well. It is mm -hmm. it is oddly it is oddly close, too close for comfort, especially when you start looking at um, wow, these stories are actually older than what we have. Mm -hmm. um, Gilgamesh visiting Utnapishtim, which is his Noah, um, is probably an older telling of 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 noah than than we have in our in our bibles and so there's a lot that we have to reconcile with especially like as we keep saying um the bible is not written in a vacuum there's culture there's place and there's time of all people and that's that's what's the beautiful thing about scripture is it's not 
it's not by itself. Right. So this next section, just we're going to just kind of go through this day one, day two, day three, really quickly, because all of this, and this is why I'm more. So now we have that poetic type talk that we're dancing around in, right? Lots of really cool metaphor and separation and God over and spirit over and the dragon fling and the, the devils in the water and, and all these cool things. But now we have a very functional and what's really interesting about like God said, let there be light. And there was light that that is a functional verse. That is not actually a creation verse that it's not the language there refers to function, not creation of light. So that kind of blows up that historical idea a little bit um, for me that I can't look at these as creation motifs. I have to look at these as function motifs. So this author is basically just telling about function, but there's a counter to light and darkness and up and down. And so let there be light is that separation between cosmos and chaos. Um, again, the separation of the waters, the expanse of the waters in the midst of the waters, let it be separated from waters from water. So bodies of water is the, is the chaos. Um, but then the, the land basically becomes the cosmos. And so the land and the sea, like what Sharia was alluding to, where like in the deep, the chaos is in the deep, in the water. Um, and and that's, that's why many of us are baptized, because we are baptized into water. And so our sins are washed into the, the sins, metaphorically, stay in the chaos. And then we're washed out. And that's why we take a bath, because dirt flows into the water. And so then you have then these separations between like uh, now barren land to vegetation. So you have chaos to cosmos. And so those are very functional, functional, functional verses. Um, let me go down quickly to sun and moon. Same idea. Day four. Um, day five, sea life and sky life, basically. Is there a separation? There's definitely a separation there. So you have separation ideas. But then it says, let the earth bring forth. So the idea, let the earth bring forth all of some kind of animal and, and human life that God made the beast of the earth the cattle after their kind, everything that creeps on the ground. So let now the earth, not let there be, but let the earth bring forth these types of, of things. And then eventually let God, um, then God said, let us make man in our own image, our image according to our likeness, he says. So let there be, let there be, let the earth bring forth and then let us, God is actually talking to himself. So let us make human beings in our own 
image and then we have the creation of human beings um, in the end. Uh, what, what is really interesting to me about that is this language that is used is not necessarily uh, the idea of formed. And some people camp on that idea that God formed human beings. Um, it actually is the word created. It's not the yasar. It's the actual word for creating an object, the bara. In the second version, God forms man right. out of dirt. But this version is God let us create. And so there's a stronger... Well, that's a good discussion for another time. It's like, why is there a difference between one and two? Um, I can, because I can show you real might... quick. I have, I have. Go a... ahead. Yeah, please. Ooh. Oh, there you go. Look at you. I know. <laughs> so when you're when you're talking through the Old Testament, especially the first, that says four books, but even even the fifth book as well. Um, but that priestly character takes over. You have different names for God or different positions that they're writing from, different even ver uh, uh, verbiage. And so there's a theory that's J-D-E-P or J-E-D-P, uh, the Yahoist, the Eloist, um, priestly or Deuteronomist. This person has the redactor or people that, that are just retelling a story again, um, <clears throat> taking things back, redoing them. And so this is how I, I believe the Old Testament was put together through many different lenses, many different eyes, many different positions. And what we got is a scribe's best effort to mash all of those together. Um, even the name for God changes a lot. Mm -hmm. And so synchronistically it should all be the same especially if you're coming from the same author um because names for for deities matter but we have definitely you have yahweh and elohim which are very two different names for god el el shaddai shekinah el shekinah so you have all of these even more names but especially the uh yahwehist and the eloist uh, view god in a much different perspective and right at the very beginning it's really hard to see but the first is that ordering and that's a very priestly duty of things and so it's it's the function of it it's the uh, the functionality of of the worship practice like it's it's almost like a liturgy that we're we're walking through in the first in the first um section and then we walk into the yahweh's which is very raw, uh, which we can get to later on one day. But um, this is how the Old Testament is constructed. That still doesn't answer my question, though. Oh, sorry. No, it's okay. <laughs> it still doesn't answer my question. And and maybe, maybe it's just purpose. Maybe it's just lens. I mean, you could probably just say it's lens. Well, we know that these, this, the all of Genesis, but really all of Torah, is put together by many different, like perspectives and different people. And did they not 
have these stories together? Did they not change these stories to be synchronous? Because the idea of like going back to created versus form, that one is created, I'd have to look at that word in, in chapter two on form to see if it's actually the word formed. But there's a very specific usage of that word in chapter one. Um, why does that change in other parts of scripture? Because you're talking about the divine, like, like actually that word would put us in a divine status that God is creating from the divine, the divine. And, and so, so I guess, I guess that would be my, a little bit of hang up. It's, it's, why is that, why is that different there? Was there a different perspective? Was there a different viewpoint that they were having at that moment? Probably. And that could just rest with that um, conclusion, but I would have to, I'd have to do a little more research. But just to complete this one story, and we'll continue this discussion next week, is when God talks, when, when, when the author gets to the human being, God talks to himself. And this is the time that God talks to himself about function of people. And so basically what God is saying is let us make human beings in our likeness. So let us make human beings like us. And there's lots of metaphor and theology that can be birthed out of just that, that statement. So do we have any concluding thoughts about this? We said a lot tonight. There's a lot of material, good hour and 23 minutes on this podcast. Jake, do you have any concluding thoughts? Uh, well, that was a lot today. So thank you yeah. for all that <laughs> hung with that. Uh, my main thought is that the text is not easy. No, it's not straightforward. It's written in time and place. And I think it's, it's historical with the purpose of writing, but doesn't have historicity around it. And so we're, we're left with the wondering of, of why was it written? Right. And, like what Kevin was saying, and he, he, that his morning perspective is written for, well, then he didn't, he, whether he disagrees with himself. I'm not sure where we're at, at the moment, but maybe <laughs> in the final thoughts, we'll get there. The there's function around the ordering. Um, or there's, and that's a totally viable option. Or I don't think it's an ordering though. I wouldn't say it's an ordering that's dangerous. But we can talk about that next week. <laughs> right? The text isn't easy. I'll leave it at that. <laughs> it might be sequential, but it's not an order of things. Hierarchy is mm. different than order. Okay. Thank you. Because otherwise you can be a patriarchy uh, person. You can be a misogynist at that point. Which... I mean, you're, you're writing to a culture that, that 
that were not the kindest to women. And so right. I think it's to it's, make it yeah. to make it speak something it doesn't. I think the redemptive pieces, especially non-patriarchy, is that God is referred to in the feminine plural. And mm -hmm. then when God speaks again to God's self, it's let us make humankind in our own image. Well, at 2-1, it says, then the heavens and earth were going. completed. Were completed and all their hosts were completed. Mm -hmm. I think the completion of this for me would be that it's a narrative, it's a poem, it shows some function, but there's probably reasons that we don't even understand. We don't. And that's okay. To come with this with a lot of theology is probably dangerous and to connect this to salvation is a dangerous theology and that would be my conclusion so with that well what about Shreya's conclusion we didn't get to hers i thought we did no i was first no i haven't said oh, anything okay okay Shreya, go for it i want to bring it back to identity that this is a yes story about people trying to figure out who they are. Um, 100%. And so as we're trying to figure out who we are and we want to be, we can draw from this story, but we also have to acknowledge that we come from a very different time and place. Right. Excellent. Thanks for circling back on that identity, because I do agree with that wholeheartedly. All right. Well, with that, we're going to conclude or we're going to conclude tonight and we're going to continue with a little bit more Genesis next week. And so thanks, Jake. Thanks, Sharia. And thanks, everyone, for listening tonight. Good night, everybody.